0: Oh, my goodness, was he feared. Oh, I I could spend the whole episode talking about he had a difficult personality and there's so many anecdotes to tell about that and it was always he was he was like a a curmudgeon he was a young curmudgeon who became an old curmudgeon right he always had that quality to him and he could turn on friends who became former friends Truffaut most infamously as, as we may talk about some more but these are still the early happy days in terms of working closely with this group and they would appear in each other's movies and, and Truffaut contributed to brothers so a reminder that these movies were released just a, a few months apart People always pay tribute to Truffaut's The 400 Blows from 1959 as somehow starting the French New Wave. One can make a case, and, and, and I would be tempted to make it, that you could actually look at Claude Chabrol's Le Beau Serge from 1958 as the first New Wave film.
1: Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westheimer,
0: And I'm Mike Giuliano.
1: And today we're going to do a tribute show to the great French director, Jean-Luc Godard. So not knowing quite where to start, I'll just start where he really kind of burst onto the scene, which is with a publication called Cahier du Cinema, which is sort of like notebook musings and reviews about movies. And Godard grew up actually pretty wealthy in Switzerland and had the ability to teach himself about film by going to the movies every day. So His background is pretty solidly, you know, guy who was obsessed with movies, who went to the movies every day to learn everything he could. And he, in the criticism that he did in Cahiers du Cinema, he was redefining film structure and style in criticism. And he and several of his cohorts would then go on to direct movies. And that made up the French New Wave. So, Mike, where do we uh, where do you want to branch off from there?
0: Well, what I'd like to start with is a very personal observation. I'm incredibly sad that Jean-Luc Godard is no longer with us. Uh, on an extremely personal note, I actually had interviewed Godard in New York City in 1980. We did the interview in an apartment on the Upper East Side. He was so generous with his time. We talked for an hour. It was really terrific. He was in New York specifically for the New York Film Festival. He had his film, uh, Soft pour La Vie, Every Man for Himself. And that was a crucial film in his career, because as Marie and I talked about the arc of the career in the 1970s, by the 1970s, he was doing extremely experimental and radical work, a lot of it for video. Uh, had sort of lost his theatrical audience and and the impulse, if you will, to make commercial features. He kind of relaunched himself with that film that I just mentioned, Uh, Every Man for Himself. And indeed, he referred to it as his second first film. Presently, Marie and I will talk about his first first film, which is Breathless in 1960. Uh, Exactly 20 years later, he relaunches himself and has an interest in getting back into more commercial filmmaking. But I have to stress very much on his own terms, These are still relatively unconventional films, but at least getting back to a feature length film that's meant to be in movie theaters and so on. And one other thing I'll mention about that particular film is ordinarily you expect the directorial credit directed by Jean-Luc Godard. Instead, the credit says composed by Godard. And as Marie and I talk, we'll, we'll be talking a lot about how his films oftentimes are like they're montage intensive, they're collages. Certainly later in the career, and a very intense interplay of uh, the visuals and the music. And so there really is a sense of composition. These are films that are made in the edit suite as much as uh, in in the shooting I- itself. And when I talk with Godard about that film, I asked him, you know, outright about that return to feature filmmaking, and he stressed the point that even though he's known for unconventional narratives or even kind of you know shrugging off narrative. He told me that he's not really opposed to narrative, but he's thinking about a different kind of narrative. And throughout his career, as we look at the arc of it, you'll see that from the get-go, from his very first feature film, Breathless, 1960, there is a quality that is elliptical and epigrammatic in Godard's work. And it becomes more intense as the 60s go on and then into that period I mentioned in the 70s. And so we will actually at this point double back to the beginning of the career. As Marie very correctly noted, this was a group of filmmakers. It was Jean-Luc Godard, it was François Truffaut, Eric Romer, Jacques Rivette, Claude Chabrol, on and on that way. And they had a few things in common in the sense of being a movement. They oftentimes had been working as film critics, journalists, writing for magazines like Cahiers du Cinéma. They were writers turned directors in most cases. And one other thing they really had in common was they were opposed to what they referred to as the quote unquote tradition of quality. Now you might wonder who could be opposed to quality? We're all for quality, right? But what they were opposed to was conventional French cinema at that time, which is sort of a pale copy of Hollywood or trying to be sometimes. These are glossy, you know, technically well-made films and, and recognizable stars, but somehow they seemed empty. That somehow this was just fake, fake in the sense of it didn't reflect what real life was like in France. So an important impulse for the new wave was to get out of the studio and out of those conventions of filmmaking, get out into the street. And I'll give a very quick example that you'll see in so many new wave films. Shoot on location. If you have an apartment, let it be in a real apartment. If the window is open, let there be actual street noise coming in. This isn't something you have to add to the film. You're letting some air into the room, basically. You're breathing life into it. And the films also tend to be much more freewheeling than conventional mainstream cinema would have been in terms of camera work and editing, narrative strategies, opening up. And in many ways, these are angry young filmmakers or determined young filmmakers, and they want to overturn all of those conventions. So the only thing I'll add in terms of that, that upbringing, those early years in the 50s, when Marie mentioned how writing for Cahiers de Cinema was essential, specifically working with the critic André Bazin, who really, uh, sad to say, died very young, but who really defined what that movement would be. And then the only thing I'll really add is that when Marie mentioned how they always went to the movies, they did, specifically the Cinematheque Francaise. Henri Lanois had, had been the, the founder and the, uh, the czar, if you will, of it. And you have to remember, back in the 50s, particularly, and for some years afterwards, if you wanted to see old movies, you had very limited options. We're so spoiled nowadays. If you mentioned the word streaming, they they would have thought of a river or something, right? They wouldn't know what we're talking about. So at that time, if you want to see a classic film from the 20s or 30s, you might read about it, but how many opportunities to actually see it? And so uh, at the Cinémathèque Francaise, which has a marvelous archive and all kinds of programming, they would go to the movies and watch oh, goodness sakes, you know, three, four, five more movies a day. They would just go from one to the next. That's why some of them were either college dropouts or sort of the equivalent. Rather than being in the classroom, they were in the movie theater and they were movie mad. And they knew American movies as well as we do. So Godard and his cohorts, you know, they formulated what's called the auteur theory, the notion that the director is the author of the film. I mean, the auteur, you know, it has your signature on it. And uh, they admired Hollywood directors like Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock and John Ford and some others, specifically because these were directors who working within the restrictions, if you will, the confines of the Hollywood studio system had a distinctive authorial signature. And they really admired that you could be in that Hollywood production line and still have a film that was recognizably Alfred Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, and so on. And so um, oftentimes when you watch their movies, they, yes, they're very French, but these are French movies that have so many references to, to American films. And as we segue in talking about Breathless, specifically American B-movies. After all, Breathless is dedicated to Monogram, one of the B-movie studios, the Poverty Row studios. And so in terms of the gangster motifs, in terms of the worship of Humphrey Bogart and so many uh, great Hollywood crime films, you see all that from the get-go very early in Godard's career.
1: Now, the fun thing about the French New Wave, I think, and all of the directors you mentioned who came out of it, is that it reminds me of Salvador Dali deciding to make a movie with Louis Bunuel because we all think of Dali as an artist. And, you know, there were no film schools at the time. So, you know, just sort of tried things. So I sort of imagine him approaching the camera like a different sort of tool and with a lot of playfulness, like, well, what can you do with it? And of course, what he did was something very surreal and bizarre. But I feel like the critics in Cahier de Cinema... When they got the chance to make movies, it was an opportunity to have some fun, to get away from the whole Hollywood style that was so popular, but also limiting in a way. But the fact that it flies in the in the face of all these conventions is what makes it exciting to watch, but also a little unsettling because when you watch a car go from, you know, the left-hand side of the screen to the right hand side of the screen, you expect it to, you know, the car to, if it's going to reappear, it's on the right hand side of the screen where you saw it last. But they why, you know, why bother with those conventions? You know, just you know, throw them away and try things. In fact, the whole jump cut thing came about from what I've read because he had shot, you know, two plus hours of footage and wanted to, to get it down to 90 minutes. So he just, you know, willy-nilly chopped it up. And in fact, Belmondo and Gene Seberg, who were working on the film with him, they thought he had no idea what he was doing. You know, they would show up to film and you know, he would be trying things out and discarding things that they worked on and changing the script and doing all of these things. And they just thought, what is this mess? This is going to be a terrible movie. Nobody expected it would be what it ended up being.
0: Yeah, in fact, when you mention what I call the jump cut sensibility, it was born of necessity in some ways. You know, he had to cut the film, and so he cut it that way. And then he realized, after all, you don't need all the traditional narrative filler. When you think about the conventions of continuity editing, you know, I'm sitting at my desk, I'm going to get up and walk across the room, I'm going to go out and get in the car, shot by shot, right? Continuity adding, why not just like cut to the chase, just cut things out? And he would do it in ways that oftentimes were not just pragmatic, but also arbitrary, just, you know, chopping it up in a way that could be like a man and a woman talking in an apartment, but the way it's cut, it is disorienting almost. And a lot of that, even though we tend to think uh, incorrectly, if uh, Godard is one of the most cerebral filmmakers, sometimes people don't give enough emphasis to the playfulness, to the silliness of a lot of it. And in the early films, certainly there's a lot of improvisational spirit. Let's try this. Let's try that. I'll give one other quick example from Breathless. It was a, a low budget film, so they don't have money for Hollywood production values, nor do they really want that, I think. But what, for instance, he wanted to have, essentially, there's a scene where, he, or scenes where he wanted like tracking shots. And in a Hollywood type film, or the French equivalent, you'd put down your tracks, you'd have the camera on a dolly, you'd roll it along as the man and woman walked down the street. And not having all that, maybe not wanting it, there's a famous anecdote where he just in effect had Raoul Coutard, the cinematographer, sit in a wheelchair, and, and, and some somebody, I like to think Godard actually pushed the wheelchair down the street. That is a young filmmaker who's thinking on the spot. And even later in his career, Godard sometimes just went into a scene with an outline or an idea and they went from there. So that kind of freewheeling sensibility actually is another way in which these films are sort of breathless. They are, they are sort of just, you know, hitting you upside the head in some ways because they want to shock you out of your usual expectations for a movie. And so there is narrative in Breathless. It's a Jean-Paul Belmondo plays a sort of petty gangster, I'll call him, Uh, you know, and and right out of the film noir tradition, right out of Hollywood gangster movies. And his hero actually is is Humphrey Bogart. So sure enough, when he goes to the movies, he goes to see The Heart of They Fall, which was Bogart's last film in 56. And when Jean-Paul Belmondo's character in Breathless has a a distinctive tick or gesture of going like this. It's something that Bogart would would have done. And actually, when he goes up to the movie theater, he sees the poster of Humphrey Bogart in this movie. And as he looks at it, Belmondo goes like this. Talk about mimetic behavior. There it is right there. So you have him as the gangster. You have Jean Seberg, a young American actress who worked with Otto Kreminger recently. She plays an American student in Paris. And essentially, it's their quasi-romance, if you will. And it's very loosely structured. I mean, it's really a very schematic kind of, you know, boy meets girl and they have some adventures and this and that, And not to spoil the ending, but just simply that it just tracks them as characters with all kinds of digressions and diversions and and fun along the way. And that's the thing about Godard with a film like this. He's, you know, making use of older genres and conventions, but kind of either sending them up or undercutting them that way. And so he has so much fun with that in terms of working movie references into it, working all kinds of stuff into it, and then just kind of like joking the material. So it's a, a movie that, you know, the thing is, it was made, think about it, more than 60 years ago, and yet it still seems radical, It still seems fresh in a lot of ways. Even though the jump cut became a convention, certainly in, in, uh, in TV commercials and elsewhere, to cut to the chase that way, or just to cut, but still watching it, it still has kind of bracing freshness to it. And it reminds me of the early 20th century poet Ezra Pound's definition of, of modernism, where he said, it's news that stays news. And so when I watch Breathless now, I still feel like this, this is still radical. It still has things to tell us. And every time I watch it, and I've seen it many times, I'm always pulled into it. It still seems like it's a new movie in some ways.
1: Now, I understand one of the other things that he tried is shooting from inside a mailbox, you know, just like crazy things nobody had ever tried before. And as much as he revolutionized the whole idea of the jump cut, he wouldn't use it himself very much in his subsequent movies, which is sort of bizarre when you when you think about it that way. Well, well, I I mean extensively. I mean, Breath of cut. Well,
0: well, Marie, we'll get into this, but his editing strategy in later films is oftentimes really intensive, and it has shocking cuts, actually, from archival footage to stuff he shot to this and to that. And so actually it is really bold in in the sense of as if the whole movie were a jump cut sometimes. But those are the much later films. We'll, We'll work up towards that. But you're right, Marie, in the feature films that immediately followed, He actually didn't use all that many jump cuts there, but but he had done it already and he still could and would occasionally do it. And then later in the career, it's like everything is is being cut fast that way. And and it it gives you whiplash sort sort of sometimes watching it. Like, what am I watching? But back to you.
1: (laughs) I wanted to mention the fact that he uses a whole bunch of his friends in the movie as well. And I also wanted to give you this quote that somebody said about the group of people who comprised the French New Wave. They said, romantic Truffaut, endearing Chebrol or evasive Romer, godard was always a force to be reckoned with even feared so i just wanted to see if you had anything to say about why he would be feared in particular oh out my of that goodness
0: group. oh my goodness was he feared oh I, I could spend the whole episode talking about he had a difficult personality and there's so many anecdotes to tell about that. And it was always he was he was like a, a curmudgeon. He was a young curmudgeon who became an old curmudgeon. Right? He always had that quality to him, and he could turn on friends who became former friends. Truffaut most infamously, as, as we may talk about some more. But these are still the early happy days in terms of working closely with this group, and they would appear in each other's movies. And, and Truffaut contributed to Brothers. A reminder that these movies were released just a, a few months apart people always pay tribute to Truffaut's The 400 Blows from 1959 as somehow starting the French New Wave. One can make a case, and, and, and I would be tempted to make it, that you could actually look at Claude Chabrol's Le Beau Serge from 1958 as the first New Wave film. But ultimately, it's sort of a moot point because what's going on here is in the very late 50s, these critics turned filmmakers. They've been working with short films and documentary films in the late 50s, they all start turning to feature filmmaking and the films are released very closely spaced. So you know, Chabrol should get some credit there, but the breakthrough really, frankly, is with Truffaut's de Blows in terms of what we call the French New Wave. But remember that comes out in, in, uh, later in 59 and Godard's Breathless comes out just a few months later. So, I mean, they're essentially coming out at the same time. And this is really what gets that movement on a roll. And American film critics, specifically Andrew Sarris, as he formulates the auteur theory, they're very quick to pick up on this and, and Hollywood takes note, too. So these films are being seen on the art house circuit in the States and in Europe are you know, influencing a lot of other directors. Of uh, one quick side note in this respect, when I mentioned all these directors hanging out at the Cinematheque Francaise in Paris, watching a lot of old movies, other directors were drawn to Paris, including a young Bernardo Bertolucci who's also put in a lot of time there at the Cinémathèque Française. And in fact, in Bertolucci's late film, which I recommend, Dreamers, it actually deals with that period in Paris in the late 60s, when in, in Bertolucci's case, you know, he'd been going to this Cinémathèque and how it influenced him. And, and I'll just, one one addendum to the, to the side note. One of my favorite anecdotes about Bertolucci is when he described this period of going to the Cinémathèque Française, Somewhat later than some of these older directors were talking about, but this is the same movement, if you will, and the sort of Italian equivalent of it. Bertolucci said, and he was actually being interviewed about uh, Dreamers, he said, you know, he loved to go to the Cimitec and he loved to sit in the front row. And somebody asked him, well, what, you know, ordinarily he'd sit further back, right? You want a good sense of the whole, why do you sit in the front row? And Bertolucci said, I want to be the first one to receive the image. I want it to hit my eyes before it hits anyone else's. That's a very romantic. I know it doesn't hold up to analysis, but it's a very romantic notion that I absolutely love to be the first, not just the first kid on the block, but the first kid in the theater to actually have the image hit your eyes.
1: Thanks for that, Mike. That was, you always have such in-depth background on every one of these stories and movies. But in terms of Breathless specifically, it starts in the middle of the action. And then you have to kind of figure out what's going on, you know, what, what happened before this? What's coming next?
0: When I mentioned Godard's epigrammatic quality, he always had great pithy quotes and that's very much a French literary tradition when you think about it, your pensée, your thoughts, you know, and oftentimes in epigrammatic form. And one of his most famous quotes is that a movie should have a beginning, a middle and an end, but not necessarily in that order. (laughs) And, And so when he and I were talking in 1980, you know, we talked about splintered or fragmented narratives, you know, as a strategy. And even though most of his films do more or less, his feature films more or less move forward, at least in in the early 60s, still he'll constantly cut to something else, either not quite a conventional flashback, but somehow flashing back to something. Could be an archival film, like an old Hollywood film that he samples. And this is actually something where like today's music scene certainly has benefited from the whole notion of sampling, like in whatever creative work you're making to dip in and to cite some. He does that with music all the time. He'll give you like, even in Breathless, Breathless, I mean, you could break your neck trying to, or your ears trying to keep up with this because he'll give you like some music, like a little a little snippet of music for like 20 seconds. And psh, like that, that's like an, what I call an aural zip jump cut, right? He'll cut from that to maybe totally unrelated music. And it constantly keeps you alert. And Marie, you're absolutely right, kind of unsettled. You're not quite, even though it's like a basic storyline and Godard liked to work with the basic setups. One of his other famous quotes, and it, it's drawn very much on, B-movie gangster material. He said, all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun. (laughs) And when you watch some of his feature films from the early 60s, that's what he's doing. Delmonde will play a gangster type character. And whoever the female lead is, is like the gun mall and whatever adventures they have. That's the narrative framework. And then he has all kinds of digressions and all sorts of observations along the way. But what's the actual narrative? It's a guy, it's a girl, it's a gun. And then the consequences of that.
1: You took the words right out of my mouth because I had that quote ready ready to go. You know, I also wanted to say that one of the things that makes Breathless so fresh and fun to watch is the music. The score for this movie is, works so well, I think. Don't you agree? I can see. Oh, absolutely. So forth. Uh,
0: absolutely. And Marie, that, that's why I began my observations on this episode talking about Godard as as a director, who in the film, he and I were talking about every man for himself, that he's not the director, he's the composer of the film. I mean, you know, when you actually see that in a credit and and his later films particularly have all kinds of titles, but when you get a title there that, you know, composed by Jean-Luc Godard, he's telling you right there that he's sitting in his edit suite, weaving together images and sounds. And again, there is definitely, I mean, the French word montage, what we call editing. It's so intensive here. It really is a kind of cultural collage that's so dense That with my favorite Godard films, I've seen them, you know, a number of times. I honestly feel like I still need to see them a few more times. You know what I mean? Like every time I watch them, I'm picking up on something else. They can be difficult. They can be challenging. They don't always immediately offer up the meaning and ultimately may not have that kind of meaning, but they're fascinating documents in terms of our cultural tapestry, if you will. And so I'm always driving pleasure from them and frustration yes but but also pleasure and trying to piece it all together and sometimes you know i'll pat myself on the back that i think i'm making a connection there i may be hallucinating that but at least i feel like oh this image relates to that one here's what he's saying but he's he's always adamant about not giving you a ready-made statement it doesn't always reduce to this is what the movie is about fill in the blank
1: You know, there are some great moments in some of his other movies that I just wanted to mention before we run out of time. One is the opening to Weekend, which is this really long tracking shot of people stuck in traffic. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And then finally you get to what caused the accident, which is, you know, an accident. People are dead on the highway. Absolutely unexpected. You're thinking... What is this? And then all of a sudden there's this shock.
0: Well, that film is very much a critique of bourgeois society. And when it goes on vacation, uh, the Weekend, you know, going away that way, and it's a spectacular sequence. The 1960s was his golden age, if you will. Godard made 17 feature films in the 1960s, including some real masterpieces. Viver Savie is certainly a film that they absolutely adore, Contempt, Alphaville, Pierre Le you know, La Chinoise, Weekend. But by the time he gets to the late 60s, with weekend, That really is his last, I don't even wanna say conventional because he's never conventional, but his last feature film that's really meant for like a mass audience that way and that would play in a number of theaters. Almost immediately after that, he starts to go into a, a really experimental, really radical period that's radical in two regards. One is politically. Bear in mind, it's 1968 in Paris. So with the barricades in the streets, his films become incredibly political, not just with French politics, but Vietnam, all sorts of things. That that carries him through a good decade or so into the 70s. The second way in which they're radical is technically. Everything that we saw before in terms of his films becoming more difficult, those are differences of degree. That if you watch Breathless, it's very accessible to watch it. Get deeper into the 60s and the films are more difficult to watch in various ways. So that's, that's a difference of degree. But the difference of degree ultimately leads to a difference of kind. His later films in the 70s, and even once he relaunches himself as a feature filmmaker in the 80s, and certainly by the time it gets into the 21st century, uh, his films are not so much feature films as personal essays. They need to be watched as personal essays. They totally go against all the conventions of narrative cinema at that point. And the final film I'll mention is one of his final films, a Goodbye to Language from 2014, which I think is a masterpiece. I think it's a really great film. In fact, the National Society of Film Critics said it was the best picture that year. And, and I, I, I strongly agree with that. And that's showing how even very late in his career, into his 80s, Godard was still experimenting. One quick example of Goodbye to Language, he shot it in 3D. I saw it at the Senator Theater on the huge screen in 3D. It was amazing. It was overwhelming what he was doing with 3D. Here's this film director in his 80s who's still pushing the envelope, still testing limits, trying out new things. It was exhilarating.
1: You know, one of my other favorite scenes from one of his movies is sa vie, Because to me, it's like the quintessential French scene, which is, you know, two people who are sitting at different tables in a cafe end up sitting together, drinking coffee and having this really highbrow intellectual conversation because the man's a philosopher and he just has all of these interesting ideas and it goes on you know it's you're basically eavesdropping on a on a conversation but it is so interesting and so intellectual bordering on the pretentious I absolutely love that scene but I wanted to say one thing I found disappointing in terms of the treatment of the subject was sympathy for the devil which was him attempting to commemorate, I guess, or record the Stones doing that very famous song, but it's, you know, cuts in and out of the studio scenes with all this bizarre imagery You know, you talked about collage and it's really not a very effective musical movie. And it's, I don't know, I just thought it was sort of a mess. What did you think of that one, Mike?
0: I actually liked it because it was a mess. I was trying to piece it together (laughs) myself. I was re-editing it. I've got to say much as I love Godard and let's say this, he was so prolific that in the late career, He's an extremely polarizing director. I tend to like all the late Goddard, but even there, some I like more than others. But let me close out with a quote about Godard's Goodbye to Language, because this really is almost, not quite, but almost his farewell to cinema. The critic David Bordwell says this about Goodbye to Language, his 2014 film. Quote, the meaning may be elusive as with most late Goddard films, but the experience feels rounded and sufficient, open but not empty, close quote. That's what I love, the openness of it. My imagination enters into the picture. I'm trying to piece it together. Godard wants us to be active viewers, trying to analyze and piece it together just as he is. That's exhilarating. That's wonderful. That is, you know, a breath of fresh air from a director well into his 80s.
1: And even though he grew up steeping himself in American cinema and then sort of, you know, going his own way with interesting new techniques, those techniques would end up back in American cinema. You know, we have the French New Wave to credit with the editing style in like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider. So, you know, they borrowed and then they gave back. So kind of an interesting arc of cinematic history. But that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And get in touch You can email us at movies at howardcc.edu. Tell us what you think of this episode or what you'd like to see in future episodes. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.